This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, James Clausen. He is a gentleman, a gentleman from Georgia, by the way, we'll get into that, who bridges the gap between computer geekdom and healthcare. That's a good description of what I do. Assistant professor at the IU School of Informatics. He uh, got his PhD over at Georgia Tech in human-centered computing. Before that, he had studied for his master's degree, human-computer interaction, which is what we do every day. Mm -hmm. But computers are now being used in healthcare in ways that lay people don't even really realize. And you're trying to figure that all out. That's right. So I really am a firm believer in a thing that I call everyday health. So it's kind of like healthcare in your daily lives. How can we use the technology that you have with you or on you or about your person or around your home to influence you? I have a laptop sitting in front of me here. Mm -hmm. How can that help me? Can it? It absolutely can. And um, it's useful. I'm less interested in something like a laptop and more interested in mobile devices and wearable devices because while we're sitting here at this table, we have a laptop there. Mm -hmm. But when you're walking around in your everyday life, it's, uh, it takes a concerted effort to have that technology with you, yeah. to find a place you can actually break that technology out, get it out of your backpack, get it out of your suitcase, put it down, open it up, boot it up. By the time you've done all of that, the, the question that you had about your health is gone. So for me, I like things that are much more accessible, much more on the body. And um, I find that you have a lot more usefulness and a lot more utility that comes out of that. Would my smartphone be something? Absolutely. So smartphones, I've done a lot of work with smartphones, done a lot of work with tablets, done a lot of work with wearable technology, both experimental and commercial stuff. Um, so you could think now about your smart watches and your smart headsets and those types of things. Um, a lot of those different types of technologies are things that I like to design for, I like to play with, and I like to deploy out in the, in the world to see if we can help people. Now, a lot of people who need health care are of a certain age, mm -hmm. and those people, they're a little bit uh, leery of uh, te new technology or even new uses for existing technology. Mm -hmm. How do you get over that? It's potentially a challenge, that's true, but I think that people get engaged engaged with things they find useful. And one of the things, so my background in human-computer interaction and human-centered computing and those types of disciplines really puts the emphasis for me on designing usable technology. So even if you're of a certain age and you're hesitant to engage with technology, my goal is to understand why and to understand ways that we can go about designing new technologies or new applications or new systems to make it easy for you to use and to provide enough value to you that it's worthwhile for you to use it. How many people do you work with on a day-to-day -day basis over at the lab? So I've got um, my own little lab that's um, a couple of PhD students and a couple of master's students and a couple of undergrads. And those are folks that I work with on a day-to-day -day basis. I teach classes, and so I've got a lot of students that I interact with. And I'm a member of, within informatics, 
a group of faculty called the Pro Health Group. Mm-hmm. And that set of faculty, there are five of us. And all of us are interested in various aspects of everyday health and take different technological approaches to solving different challenges that people have with their health and their healthcare. There's plenty of room and opportunity for people in my discipline and in my field to design technologies for doctors or for emergency rooms or for use in the clinic or use in the hospital um, to improve those systems and to improve um, the care that people receive and the ability for the doctors to treat patients and the ability of the nurses and the rest of the staff to coordinate and support their patients in any and all ways. Um, And that is all well and good, but I'm interested in being outside of the clinic. I'm really interested in folks just walking through Bloomington, doing their thing and um, supporting casual conversations about health or supporting people engaging with their health and learning about themselves as they're going through healthcare journeys, for example. Now, is what you're saying that you, you want to be, uh, as we often say, a nudge? <laughs> and you want to say, hey, you better eat right. Hey, you better lose 30 pounds. Is that what you're getting at? So not necessarily. I think that there is definitely a space for that, right? Reminding people to engage in healthy behaviors is one way of going about it. But I'm... I even then I'm not as interested in doing that. So the type of the one of the keywords that kind of drives a lot of my research is support. I'm mm-hmm. really interested in supporting individuals in engaging in the activities that they want to engage in and that they need to engage in. Um, and sometimes that can be in the form of remember to take your medicine, <laughs> remember to eat your broccoli. But sometimes that can also be in the form of here's a doctor that you haven't interacted with who might have a special insight into a problem that you're having. Or here is a way of um, getting in contact with people that you might not have thought about getting in contact with who have resources that can help you. Um, and so sometimes it's just connecting people to resources in their environment, in their community. Um, sometimes it's helping people communicate better about their conditions, about their challenges with their health professionals or with their spouses and children. So it can be kind of a wide range of how health fits into your everyday. Fresh out of your uh, PhD program, uh, you worked on something called the Navigating Cancer Project. Mm -hmm. What was that all about? My PhD was in wearable computing, so I was working in the wearable computing lab. I was very focused on designing new technologies that people can wear on their bodies and can incorporate into their daily lives. I was designing those technologies. I was testing those technologies. I was using those technologies um, in the laboratory environment, trying to figure out what people could do and what were the limits of human capabilities and how could we design better on-body systems. And felt like, all right, I now understand what people do in their day-to-day lives, how we can design mobile technologies to help people when they're on the go, when they're out and about and doing things. I want to take that expertise in mobile user experience and apply that to a specific domain. So I decided to um, get a postdoctorate education. And so I spent three and a half years in the everyday computing lab at Georgia Tech working in cancer. So I wanted to say I'm applying my expertise in human computer interaction, mobile human computer interaction to the domain of health. And specifically, we were working with cancer. I went from living and working in downtown Atlanta to, well, I continued to live there, but I worked up in um, kind of rural north 
West Georgia. So I was working in a, a small town called Rome, Georgia. It's about the size of Bloomington, maybe a little bit bigger. So up in Rome, Georgia, there were two hospitals and a cancer clinic. So while it was a relatively small town, it was a regional healthcare center. And it served um, patients from about a hundred mile radius in that area. I worked in supporting um, patients with breast cancer and I got involved in that because I was, we um, designed a three or four year adventure. We designed a project that put us working in the field for a year, a year and a half, where we were learning about cancer and learning about people's cancer experiences and learning about the challenges that individuals were having dealing with their cancer, not just with understanding their own health and healthcare, understanding how to navigate the healthcare system, who were their doctors, who were their nurses, who were the um, clinicians who were helping and assisting them. Um, even, and that's at like the, the mundane rudimentary level of like, well, where do I park and how do I get to the radiation rooms and wh how does chemo work? And, and which doctor do I call to get this prescription refilled, et cetera? Absolutely. And yeah. that is, can be just overwhelming, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, and frustrating. And frustrating. Yeah. Absolutely. And so learned about those types of challenges. We learned about the types of challenges that people had communicating about their cancer. How do I get support from my family? How do I get support from my friends? How do I get the help that I need? How do I talk to people at work about this? How do I talk to people in my day-to-day -day lives? Essentially, once I've been diagnosed with cancer, my life is very disrupted. Yeah. How do I understand what those disruptions are? How do I make sense of that? How do I navigate those situations? And is this abnormality normal? Right. Yeah. And that's the biggest question that everyone has is when you're undergoing a healthcare journey, right? And I, and I really love this term of healthcare journeys and I'll talk about it a lot. For me, a healthcare journey is what the entire set of experiences that someone goes through from the time they are diagnosed with a disease or a condition, they progress from that diagnostic phase into kind of an engagement with the healthcare system phase where they're being treated for this system. So they're going into active treatment and then they're progressing through active treatment and back into like a return to normalcy and trying to figure out what that is. So for me, it's that whole journey. And in the cancer sense, it is... Um, so for our breast cancer patients, I've got a lump, I'm detecting this lump, I figured this out, I now have to go to the doctors and find it, and there's going to be a surgery of some sort, or there's not, then there's going to be chemo or not, and radiation or not, depending on your stage, depending on your health, depending on a lot of different factors, depending on your insurance. A lot of different factors control your, your path, and then you're going to progress through that cancer and out into the other side. And breast cancer is wonderful in terms of cancers. Cancers are not very wonderful in any stage, but it has the highest rate of survivability right. um, of any cancer. And it has the highest rate of detection, I would think, of any cancer because people are constantly looking for it. So women are getting annual mammograms frequently. It's a cancer that is discussed often. It has a lot of public support. You see pink ribbons everywhere. It has a month. It has, you know, a lot of public support and not you all can, cancers do. You can look for it yourself with your fingers. Absolutely. You can detect this cancer on your own. And that is not the case for the majority of cancers, right? Right, right. Um, and it's 
a great, it was a great place for me to work. So we would support patients as they went through this engagement with their active treatment and then off into survivorship because the, the vast majority of them, that was the, the successful outcome. And then survivorship for a breast cancer patient is traditionally still medically supported, right? So you come through all of your surgeries, your chemo, your radiation, and then you have five years of hormone suppressant pills. So you're taking uh-huh. a, a, an estrogen suppressor every single day for the next five years. And, um, and that's kind of the, the cancer journey that I was working with in a nutshell. But I've since cancer, and I'll come back to cancer because I have a lot to talk about with that. But mm-hmm. since cancer have gone on to continue to pursue work in this healthcare journey space. And in my time at IU, so I've been here for two years now, I've um, really spent a lot of time investigating pregnancy as a healthcare journey. And I have spent a lot of time investigating grief and bereavement as a healthcare journey. So how do you support somebody um, who has just lost a parent or a child or a spouse? I've been working with um, a PhD student and another faculty who are really interested in looking at um, a situation called multiple chronic comorbidities, which happens when you have more than one chronic disease um, and they are happening at the same time and you're trying to manage them and they have different diagnostic paths and they have different treatment paths and sometimes those are in conflict and so you might be visiting one doctor or set of doctors to deal with one condition and another doctor or another set of doctors to deal with another condition and you might not be it oftentimes put the patient in a really difficult position where they have to choose whose advice am I going to follow because if I eat this particular diet then it inflames that condition yeah and so and the doctors don't call each other up as a rule and say, hey, uh, I've got patient XYZ and uh, there's a conflict here, so let's work it out, you and me. That's exactly right. And so the patient's stuck in a really tricky spot. So I've recently started working with a student and faculty member who are working in that space and looking at these colliding journeys and what happens when these journeys have different paths. And so the metaphor of the journey is something that I'm really interested in supporting and really interested in engaging with. And in the multiple chronic comorbidities piece aside, cancer, grief and bereavement, and pregnancy, one thing that really unites those three journeys for me is that each of those times, at like the inception of that journey, mm-hmm. um, are points in time where someone someone's identity is fundamentally rewritten, like at the the DNA level, right? The the day you are told that you have cancer, the day you are told that you are pregnant for the first Mm -hmm. time or find out that you're pregnant, the day that you lose a parent, a child, or a spouse are moments that are inflection points in your life. And from those points on, things are different and will always be different. It's a brand new life. It's a brand new life. And you have to figure out what that normal is and how that, what your new normal is going to be, and you will go on this journey that will be into treatment, into support, into engagement with the healthcare system, and you will come through that and in some ways, and you'll be a different person at the other end. And for me, those vulnerable times, those challenging times, those times when you are scared and have questions about what's going on with you, And how do you talk about it? And how do you think about it? And how do you respond to it? And how do you organize your daily life around it? 
those are moments that I think there are opportunities to provide some type of computational support or technological support or the ability to, to make connections between a person and their healthcare provider or between a person and some type of support system that can help them in this dangerous and t challenging time. And so that's, that's where I like to focus my efforts is designing technologies to holistically help people across the course of their journey to figure out what is going on with them, to understand how to deal with that, how to react to that, how to get help. And there's multiple factors that here that we can talk about. And then how to put their lives back together and figure out what life is going to be after cancer or with a brand new baby mm -hmm. or you know, without, without someone. the person yeah, yeah. who's your significant, significant to your life. You seem to be passionate about health. Mm -hmm. You also seem to be passionate about technology. This is true. Okay. As I say, you bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. You started off as a young punk college student studying technology. Mm -hmm. You didn't go to become a doctor. When did the, the melding of the two happen? I got into the field of human-computer interaction because I was introduced to the idea that you could study the way that people use technologies and you could learn about people, and you could learn about technology, and you could design things to make people's lives better, and you could design things to help people accomplish their goals, and you could design things to just improve the way that people went throughout their daily lives. And that was like what I realized I wanted to do when I was 23 years old. I was just like, this is super exciting. This is what I want to be when I grow up. And I can't believe that you can study technology in the way that people use it. And that's a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I then went on a long academic path where I focused more and more and more, which is what happens when you get a PhD on a smaller and smaller set of problems. And I ended up doing my, my dissertation work on looking at how quickly and accurately people could type on mobile phones and inventing new systems to make it easier for people to text one another. That brings up a question. Fitz Law, mm -hmm. that plays into what you just mentioned. Yeah, so Fitz Law is a piece of science that is really old in the computer science literature. Um, and in a nutshell, it talks about it's the way of studying how people can successfully hit a target. And it talks about the size of a target on the screen. So like if you're thinking about, am I going to be able to click this button on a web page? Right. How big should the button be? And how far do I have to drag my mouse? And how big should my mouse cursor be? And Fitz Law is really the underpinning science that lets you scientifically measure things like button size and movement speed. And you think about speed and accuracy trade-offs, right? The faster you go to do something, the more inaccurate you become. And, uh -huh. and that law kind of informs some of those decisions. So, And there are mathematical formulae behind this? Absolutely, there are. And um, it's, it's, it's something that we can use as a human-computer interaction tool to technically measure and design screen layouts for multiple different devices. I did a lot of um, smartwatch work, for example, back in the early 2000s, where we were doing things like trying to figure out if you could, how many, 
how many buttons could you actually put on a a smartwatch that people could actually use, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, our fingers and our thumbs, they're they are a fixed size. We're mm -hmm. not getting any smaller or any sharper or any pointier, right? Yeah. yeah. So how many buttons can you put there? And what happens if you change the size of those buttons or the shape of those buttons? So if you're working on a round watch, do you make um, triangle-sized buttons like a pizza? Or do you make square-sized <laughs> buttons? Or do you make different sets of targets? And FitzLaw can inform all of that type of thing. So we would run studies where we would vary the different um, parameters of fit slot. So you would change the target size or you would change the distance between targets and you would consider how that impacts the number of buttons you could actually put on a screen. So if you think about how much mobile phone screens have changed over time, how much um, progress there has been in smartwatches recently, um, how even alternative Input devices like Google Glass or like Apple's AirPods or other things that we're wearing on our body, how they have new forms of interaction. While Fitch's Law doesn't necessarily inform that, it's in the same vein of research in terms of yeah. thinking about input and interaction techniques and how do we make it easier or better for people to use these technologies? How do we improve their experiences? And sometimes that can be on a really, really low level, like what I did for my PhD, which was millions and millions of button presses. <laughs> or sometimes that can be on the more creative level, like how can we artistically design these interactions so that they fit into everyday life in a socially appropriate way? And how do we think about... And look nice. And look nice and have you know great aesthetics and great form. And um, so it's kind of a really wide-ranging discipline. But for me... This is a very long-winded answer to get back to your original question. How did I get into health? Yep. I went through this big journey of being amazed that you could study the way people use technology in their everyday lives. That's incredible. To getting a PhD in button pressing. And at the end of that was an expert in mobile and wearable human-computer interaction. But I missed people. I wanted to be back out in the world because the thing that really got me into HCI in the first place was talking to people about their lives and observing the way that people use technology and designing technologies to support them. And health was an exciting way to do that. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to really be the case for me in, in my cancer journey project and my cancer journey work, um, which I haven't even really dived into too much. But uh, I got to work with patients across a wide range of ages, and I got to put technology in their hands that they engaged with every single day that changed the way they thought about themselves, that changed the way they thought about their disease, that changed the way that they interacted with their doctors and their healthcare providers. And that was just electric. That was just amazing and powerful and an incredible experience for me. It was amazing for me to be like, wow, this thing that we have just designed and just deployed is actually impacting the way that people are progressing through their cancer journeys and thinking about their their diseases and we're improving that experience and that was an amazing thing to do. Did you come up with uh, some kind of customizable breast cancer tablet? Yeah. So this is what the this is this is what the the cancer journey project was all about. So we spent we were, I was in Rome for three and a half years. Yeah. My first year and a half was interviewing patients 
interview cancer patients, interviewing doctors, interviewing nurses, interviewing caretakers, interviewing cancer navigators to learn about from the variety of perspectives what the cancer journey was. Uh-huh. Then we had engaged with the healthcare system and we designed a set we designed a mobile technology which was a an off-the-shelf seven-inch Android tablet. Mm-hmm. And on this tablet, we gave patients a suite of best-in-class um, technology. So it had it had a set of communication technologies. It had a set of entertainment technologies. It had a set of healthcare technologies um, on this tablet. And included in that set of healthcare technologies were the patients' personal health records. So it was the patient's Health history. Um, When you say that, mm -hmm. do you mean that's the same information that the doctor or nurse carries around in the hospital when they come visit you while you're laying in bed? Yep. The exact same thing. And you have access to it. We have access to it, and we were giving that, putting that in the hands of the patients. So we were working in rural Georgia. Um, We had the ability to say any patient who is diagnosed with breast cancer within the the healthcare system is eligible to participate in our research. And if you choose to participate in our research, we'll give you these technologies that could potentially assist and support you. And um, we are going to be collecting your usage data. So how are you using it? Because we wanted to learn about what was useful and what wasn't. And um, we gave, we had over the course of the project, I believe over a hundred patients choose to engage in our research. We were giving them tablets with all of this information and we were logging all of their interactions with it. Um, and then we were following up with them. So we would interview them one month after diagnosis, three months after diagnosis, six months, a year, 18 months, two years. And at each of these touch points, each of these times, we would talk to them about just have them tell us about their cancer journey. What were the challenges they were having? What was going on with their lives? How were they coping and dealing? And what were the, what was working and what wasn't working? What did we give them that was broken? How are we making things harder? Because all of that information was useful for us to how can we improve this experience? And that was one of the things that, I mean, you hear me saying that people were being given technology in exchange for their data. And a lot of people get very uncomfortable about that. Especially nowadays. Especially nowadays. Um, One of the things that was really nice about it was there was an altruistic feel about it, right? These patients were choosing to give us access to their usage data so that we could learn how to improve this experience for people who are coming after them, right? So how can we learn from your experiences to improve these technologies mm-hmm. and these, these um, the user experience for those who come after you? And folks felt comfortable making that, um, that trade. We were very explicit that we were, um, what we were going to use that data for, how we were collecting the data, what types of data we were collecting. We went through all of our university in informed consent. We worked really hard training the patients to understand what that was and what we were going to use their data for. And we had over a hundred patients who engaged in our research and gave us mountains of valuable data. James Clausen, he's an assistant professor at the IU School of Informatics. He's the fella who bridges the gap, at least here, along with a number of other people, the gap between personal, wearable technology 
and healthcare. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.